Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Let's just uh, do a little bit of escapism, and we'll have some have a little geek out uh, around the campfire, right? As per usual, I love the microbiome, and the latest information may surprise you. Uh, thanks to Guy, uh, a, a uh, professor of biology up at UCSC, for the link to this story. Uh, I'm going. I'm not going to get too deeply into the weeds of the actual science. Uh, so, but the recent work that this these groups have been doing about uh, motivation in mice has uh, profound implications for humans and maybe even some therapeutics. I've always uh, said that it all starts with the gut, and the microbiome is key to physical health. Well, it turns out that at least in this recent study just published in Nature, that uh, the motivation to perform long-term physical activity is not just driven by the brain, but is actually associated with the uh, gut bacteria in some really fascinating ways. First of all, specific bacterial groups had already emerged as regulators of athletic performance, uh, one of that, uh, one of those ways is just by allowing the body to have more energy. So there are bacteria that help your body extract more energy from food, which is obviously going to help athletic performance. And there are bacteria that uh, aid in the clearance of molecules that are associated with physical uh, exhaustion in the host. So this is, you know, so you don't feel as tired. Obviously, you can exercise more. But research done by Donna Lova and company looked at a large group of mice and did some fascinating science on them. First of all, they had uh, a large group of mice and they uh, looked at them when they were running on treadmills or wheels and they monitored their run time. Uh, And they looked at a whole bunch of physiological factors, including the genetic signatures, Uh, molecular profiles in the blood serum for various chemicals, metabolic parameters, similar to what we might look at in a diabetic, and also the microbial repertoire in the gut. And what they found was that the microbial community alone predicted how long those mice would run very accurately. So that was suggestive. An association, however, doesn't prove causality. So They took these same mice and they depleted their gut bacteria through antibiotic treatment, and they found that decreased athletic endurance. But then, and this is really the, uh, this really sinks the basket on proving causality, they transferred microbiomes from these high-performing mice into germ-free mice, which are raised without any microbial colonization of their gut. And what they found was that the donor recipients increased their running capacities to the same level as those of the sample donors. So this is really fascinating, and it probably has to do with dopamine, something about the signaling of dopamine, you know, that so-called runner's high. Well, dopamine-producing neurons in the brain 
uh, areas particularly called the ventral tegmental area, the substantia nigra. Substantia nigra is, by the way, the thing that goes bad in Parkinson's disease and doesn't make dopamine anymore. So guess what? Dismotivation and apathy are uh, definite symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, uh, excuse me, of Parkinson's disease. Well, here's our connection. Uh, so the other brain areas as well are involved. The ones that are known to affect cognitive, emotional, and motivational aspects of reward-associated behaviors. So in mice uh, harboring typical microbiome, exercise decreases the expression of an enzyme called monoamine oxidase. And monoamine oxidase is the major enzyme that degrades dopamine and some of the other neurotransmitter molecules. This is probably why uh, we have a good feeling and from exercise. There's also an exercise-induced burst of dopamine, uh, and there's a part of the brain that is activated by exercise called the striatum. Now, they went further and they inhibited these dopamine-producing neurons in the ventral tegmental uh, area, and they also blocked the dopamine-sensing receptors, and both of these interventions reduced athletic endurance. More evidence that that exercise-induced dopamine surge is crucial to the willingness to keep moving. And when when mice lacking gut bacteria exercised, their expression of MAO didn't change, and both of that dopamine surge that you'd expect to see and the striatal neuronal activity were blunted uh, compared to the gut, the mice with gut microbiomes. Then when they restored the gut microbiome, they got, uh, in, they got an improvement of activity. They also inhibited MAO using a MAO inhibitor, and that improved athletic bacteria. And they artificially increased dopamine signaling in the striatum of these mice using an elect, probably using an electrode. And all of these restored exercise performance in those mice that don't have the gut bacteria. So how does this work? Well, the microbiome appears to use local neuronal stimulation in the gut to change motivational circuits in the brain. There are some specific neurons that express a protein called TRPV1. And these neurons are present at high levels in the colon, and they project to the spinal cord. And when you have those conventional mice with gut bacteria, uh, those neurons are stimulated by activity. But you don't see those in uh, the mice who got treated with antibiotics. And... If you activated those again using electrodes, you got the electrode, you got the uh, performance back. So you also got a decrease locally in MAO levels and that burst of dopamine that we were expecting to see in the striatum. So essentially, these neurons are key in the factor and they are being stimulated by bacterially produced molecules. These molecules are called fatty acid amides and they directly activate those neurons, acting like a neurotransmitter. And the amount of these fatty acid amides in the guts of the mice correlated directly with their athletic performance. So if they gave the mice dietary fatty acid amides, uh, 
they got the same results as giving the good bacteria to the germ-free mice that restored the ability of exercise to change dopamine signaling in the brain. Ah, but there's more. Wait, those FAA molecules act on, guess what receptor? CB1, the cannabinoid 1 receptor. This is expressed by the sensory neurons in the gut. And blocking this receptor or blocking CB1-associated signaling prevented the beneficial effect of fatty acid uh, amide supplementation on physical activity. So this is a very well-done scientific study, which demonstrates extremely clearly strong evidence that these things are linked. The gut, flo- the gut bacteria produce a compound. You can give that compound and increase reward signaling in the brain. It correlates, the amount of the, cor- of the compound and the presence of the bacteria correlate directly with the, the duration of time that the mice are willing to spend on the treadmill. And not just that, of course, CB1 and, uh, receptors and these TRPV1 molecule, uh, neurons also convey pain-related signaling. So changing the way the body interprets pain, making an association between pleasurable reward dopamine and the sensation of exercise is another piece of how this all works. So this both gives us non-invasive methods to access reward circuits in the brain, it also suggests a way that we might be approaching addictive behavior because that is dependent largely on dopamine. Uh, we, we, I can see the potential for certain probiotics that boost your athletic performance. Uh, fa- uh, the fatty acid amine supplementation uh, might work as well, and that's something that could be produced and validated probably fairly easily. The the probiotic piece of that is easy to weaponize. I don't know if you'd have to go through the fatty acid amides as a drug or whether they could be considered a food supplement, but either way, if I could get my patients off the couch and exercising more, so many of the lifestyle-related diseases, not to mention pain, can be mitigated. Maybe we have found part of the Rosetta Stone that's going to allow us to tackle the problem of lifestyle-related chronic disease. So exciting. I, I can't wait to see where this goes next. This study I found in Le Monde, France, that read, read this the other morning, and it just jumped off the page at me. They don't usually publish much in the sciences, but this was uh, this is really fundamentally interesting work coming from uh, the September issue of the journal Cell, and where two teams, American and Israeli, reported the presence of fungi in many different tumor uh, types inside the cells of cancers, that is to say. They also discovered that these, that some of these uh, fungi could actually reprogram the 
first lines of defense against cancer. The tumor's microbiota, mycobiota, myco for fungi, forces the immune system to tolerate the presence of the tumor instead of fighting it. And, of course, tumor tolerance is one of the reasons why we're using all of those immune checkpoint inhibitors. And if you go back in the archives over the last few months, we've talked about those and the risks of these highly expensive and potentially quite toxic uh, drugs. What if we could simply approach it in a different way? Maybe this is the core mechanism for that, in which case... Maybe we could block it with simple antifungal therapy. Now, we know that bacteria are associated particularly with colon cancer and stomach cancer, right? B. fragilis, bacterioides fragilis, E. coli, certain species, and fusobacterium species are involved in the development directly of colorectal cancer. And we also know that helicobacter pylori in the stomach if you're infested with that, even if you don't get an ulcer from it, your risk of colon of stomach cancer increases. And th- this research comes out of the Weissman Institute in Israel, and they showed looking at 17,000, over 17,000 tissue blood plasma samples, a mycobacterial profile that was associated with 35 different types of cancer. Uh, in total, they had one different mushroom species that was detected in all of the cancers analyzed. In other words, even though the fungi DNA is just a very small amount of the DNA in these tissues, it gives us the potential to screen for the screen the bloodstream for specific cancers by looking for the specific DNA of a specific fungus. Now, the the fungi in question, Malassasia, which is the one that causes uh, tinea versicolor, a common fungal rash, something that if you go to the tropics, you're likely to come back with. Candida albicans, we've all heard of candida albicans, that causes thrush, but it's also a frequent colonizer of the GI tract. Uh, Malassasia, uh, I've already mentioned, and one called Blastomyces, uh, Gilchristi. So that last one is uh, often found after you inhale spores that one finds in wet soils. (laughs) So I guess we'll be, uh, when I'm digging in my wet garden, I may be considering wearing a mask so I don't inhale those spores this spring. it causes lung disease, but obviously if you get your your if if your gut gets colonized, you could potentially be looking at a cancer risk there. Bacteria also exist in tumor tissues, and we've been looking for a sort of microbiome profile, but it's way less specific. And it's only recently that we've developed that are high-resolution technologies that allows us to actually find in the bloodstream enough of these mycobacteria uh, DNA to measure it. And, of course, it's only recently that we've developed machine learning that can look at all of this data and crunch through it and provide us with the uh, information. So a team led by Ilian Yev at 
Cornell University and also researchers at Duke identified specific species of fungi specifically associated with certain cancers. And they found uh, lots of the GI, which sort of makes sense, colon, rectum, and stomach, uh, less of an issue in cancer of the esophagus, where the inflammation is more likely related to stomach acid and H. pylori, and nothing really to speak of in brain tumors. So it's tumor-specific, and there are some that are more abundant in lung and bacterial, uh, sorry, lung and breast cancers. And we see a lot of candida albicans in most tumors, and up until recent, it's not entirely clear whether it's causative, but we know that these fungi are pro-inflammatory, and we know that inflammation uh, is made worse by inflammation. But this was new and very interesting. The researchers found that if you had candida predominant tumor cells, in other words, a, a lot of candida DNA in an in a isolate of the tumor, you know, grind it up and run the DNA, basically. If you found a lot of candida, these were the tumors that were more likely to metastasize than those in which, in which a different type of fungus, Saccharomyces, uh, and you have heard me talk about how Saccharomyces boulardii displaces and competes with candida, and I treat people who have too much candida in their gut with that, uh, and it's it's effective, but it's essentially squeezing out, competing for the food supply. Uh, so if you've got the candida albicans or the candida trepicalis in your colon cancer, there's a strong association with more advanced disease and more metastatic disease, which raises the possibility that we could be using this as a biomarker in prognosis. Uh, in fact, the survival rate five for... Uh, five-year survival in colon cancer, uh, actually all GI cancers, it's about 40% if you have a lot of candida and 60% in the absence of fun- of that fungus's DNA. And there's other studies that have looked uh, similar findings looking at a lower three-year survival. So not only is it an association it's actually a negative actor, probably because of the production of interleukin-1, an inflammatory marker, which is known to be a major player in the development of cancer and tumor progression. So this is not something you want around in your gut, and the candida actually makes it. So it could all be inflammation, but it's inflammation that can be treated. And the causality has yet to be established, but we do see decreased fungal diversity in patients with uh, inflammatory bowel disease, with celiac disease, and decreased diversity is associated with increased cancer risk. And so we've got enough evidence here to make treating uh, seem treating the fungi as a primary contributor, uh, at least logical. And that brings to mind, and you know I am not a fan of unnecessary or it might help antibiotics, but I'll tell you 
the use of an antibiotic is going to increase the probability of a bloom of candida or other fungi in the gut. So you don't want to kill off your ground cover, have a fungal bloom, and maybe, and particularly for people who are treating cancer or who are about to have cancer surgery, maybe we should really be doing everything we can. Possibly, there's, as you know, there's a strong association between diet and cancer. We've been saying, well, it's low fiber. That's course, contributes to the microbiome. High sugar, we know that's a risk factor for many cancers, but could it also be through the mediation of these fungi? This is, of course, just the tip of a big iceberg, and you can bet that we'll be talking about that substantially over the next few years, and I hope that you'll be staying tuned. So we are uh, going to move to emails now. And we had several emails this week. We'll start out with JR, who's uh, sending, who sent an email from Idaho. And uh, JR, the uh, question is ketamine drops versus nasal, ketamine nasal spray for depression. Hi, Dr. Don. Thank you for the great work that you do. I just want to ask about the ketamine treatment for depression and anxiety. I hear a lot of bad stigma about this medicine. I was hoping you could shed light on this one. Will this be effective? Will it be safe? Will I build tolerance to pain medicines, etc.? So, uh, JR, I think that's an excellent question. So, I'm going to start off with the uh, last, your last question: Will I build tolerance to pain medications? And the answer to that is no. Most pain medications work uh, in different mechanisms. So, the ketamine is an anesthetic. To the extent that it works, it works on uh, the brain through in the same in a similar way to anesthetics. So it's not really a painkiller. Uh, it's sed- quite sedating, and it's used in animal surgery primarily in this country. Uh, there have been uh, some use there. There is some literature about using it for pain, but. It, uh, that isn't really where we've been going, and that's not really where you're going with your question. The data on depression and anxiety is pretty strong. Most of that was done with the intravenous form of ketamine, although there are some comparative studies that I'll come back to in just a moment. And yes, because it is a street drug, sometimes called Special K, and I'm sure there's a hundred other name code names for it, uh, people... It has an association with drug abuse and and also, I, I think, uh, gets a bad rap. So just for people to be able to use this off-label for depression and anxiety took a long time. But now it's become very uh, accepted therapy. And I even occasionally see, get an ad in my email from, uh, there's a couple of outfits over the hill in San Jose who were doing this. I'm not aware of anyone who's doing it locally in the Santa Cruz area, but that may just be because they haven't sent me an email. Uh, I feel it is a very legitimate thing to try. Recently, a study was published showing that the effects in a certain percentage of the responders did seem to attenuate after about three months. But uh, if a three-month IV 
if if every three months you have to have a, an intravenous therapy, that seems like a very, very reasonable thing to do. Now, the nasal spray is actually a little bit different. The ketamine that is given intravenously uh, is broken down in a different way. The the escatamine, which is the drug that is the, the nasal spray is made of, is physiologically a little bit different, and that's because it's intended to be squirted into the nose, and inside the nose there are actually enzymes that break down ketamine uh, in the raw form. So it has to be this escatamine. Don't let someone sell you you know, street ketamine in a nasal spray bottle, it won't work. And God knows now with the fentanyl uh, sorts of uh, contamination of the drug supply, you might end up giving yourself uh, an opiate overdose with the stuff, and that could be lethal. So do not go there. The uh, Both of these require a prescription. And the nasal spray has some disadvantages. First of all, it's slower to work, and it's less effective. It has less duration of action, and it's way more expensive. Further, it costs about $240 per dose, and one worries also about the chance of counterfeit drugs. Intravenous drugs are much harder to counterfeit when uh, you're talking about IV infusions. Uh, it's still possible. I have heard, for example, of uh, counterfeit Botox being out there. But I, I think that the chance is much, much lower. So lots of reasons to favor the intravenous use. And if you are a, uh, and the, most of the data looking at effectiveness says, yeah, you've got to be on an antidepressant and the nasal spray to get anywhere near the effect that you get from one intravenous infusion every three months. Not sure about availability uh, where you are in Idaho, but I certainly think that you could probably find a pilgrimage location. And if you have tried at least two or three different drug categories of antidepressant uh, and not seen the effect that you're looking for or not benefited at all, this certainly is an option to consider. I will also say that similar work is being done with uh, the psilocybin agents, and that is still at the research level, and you have to be in a clinical trial, but there may be a trial at the university near you, and clinicaltrials.gov uh, search for uh, psilocybin, you may find something that you could join. If you aren't on a lot of other agents, you might, and you're younger, you might be a great uh, subject for an experimental therapy. And I feel that this is experimentally a legitimate thing to consider as well. Our next email is a follow up from Peggy. And Peggy, uh, I'll just read her. her Subject question about the omentum. I was reading the operation report of my recent surgery for colon cancer, stage one, and it says that in addition to removing 10 inches of my sigmoid colon, they did a partial omentectomy. I've never heard of the omentum before, so I've begun to read more about it. 
I wonder if you can tell me if a partial omentum removal would have any effect on my microbiome, understanding that my attention to the microbiome may play a role in preventing colon cancer recurrence, as per our earlier story, folks, or any new primary cancers. I've appreciated your recent answers to my questions, and I highly value both your opinion and knowledge. Thanks so much for all you do. Okay, well, Peggy, let's first of all define the omentum. The omentum is a structure that I'd never heard of before medical school either, and it's essentially a continuation of your peritoneum. So peritoneum is a mucous membrane, very similar to uh, the one that's inside your mouth. It's a thin layer of a type of skin, and you have peritoneal tissue lining the inside of your abdominal cavity and also peritoneal tissue covering all of your guts in there. And and actually, the kidneys being the exception, they're behind the peritoneum, so-called retroperitoneal tissue, but everything else is in effectively a big slimy bag. The omentum is that it's Latin for apron. And when you open up an abdomen in a human, what you see is a sort of curtain that looks kind of lacy. It's got blood vessels in it. And in most Americans, it's also got a fair amount of fat. And it's got a bunch of lymph nodes. And in a quote-unquote virgin abdomen, the omentum is uh, just like an apron. It just flaps in the breeze and you roll it up and put a retractor in there and get it out of the way. In a person who's had surgery, however, in the process of healing, the omentum tends to get inflamed and inflamed, the inflamed uh, peritoneum gets sticky. And this seems maladaptive because it leads to scarring and quote-unquote adhesions, which is where bits of your gut stick together or bits of the omentum wrap around a piece of gut. And this can raise the risk of small bowel obstruction. So if someone comes in with abdominal pain and vomiting, uh, the first thing you think of, uh, particularly if there's a lot of vomiting and uh, a certain uh, presentation, uh, you worry about the gut having gotten essentially strangulated or twisted upon itself. And this is far more common in people who have scar tissue in their abdomen than those who don't. And I'm afraid now at this point, you are going to join that club anyway because of the uh, colon uh, removal or the portion of your sigmoid colon that was removed, a segmental resection, that's called. So you are already going to have that risk, but you do need to be aware that uh, the doctors should know that you've had abdominal surgery. They'll probably be clues, but nowadays that we do so much Uh, laparoscopic surgery, it can sometimes be difficult to tell the difference between a well-healed surgical scar and a stretch mark. So it's an important bit of history for anyone with abdominal pain. The lymph nodes needed to be checked because when you have a colon cancer, the first place that's going to want to go is the lymph nodes. And the lymph nodes in the omentum are geographically associated with that portion of the colon. It's actually kind of a, it, it's kind of uh, attached. The colon's attached to the omentum, and like I said, when it's not scarred up, it keeps things from twisting around. But when it does get scarred up, it can actually contribute to that. The lymph nodes 
had to be ruled out for cancer, and that's been done now. So uh, you're on your healing course, and I wish you the best of luck. And I hope that my explanation has provided you with some useful information. Now, this one is from RN in Boulder Creek, and RN writes, A new medication for Alzheimer's. Dear Dr. Don, I saw an ad for lecanemab. This is a medication that's supposed to slow the progress of cognitive decline. They say this is the only med that can help. What is your opinion on this drug? Does it help? Well, first of all, uh, R, if you had been uh, listening, you might have heard me talk about this drug a few months ago when it was recommended Again, over the objections, I might add, of the FDA's committee of independent reviewers for approval and introduction. It felt a little bit like the fix was in. There may have also been some political pressure on the FDA to find something, damn it, anything that has an effect on Alzheimer's disease. And this drug had enough of an effect on a short trial, I might add, of only 18 months, which is rather uh, astonishing given the prior track record of drugs in this category for Alzheimer's disease, many of which uh, are were also monoclonal antibodies directed against beta amyloid and were shown to actually worsen Alzheimer's disease, probably because they increased inflammation in the microglia, the the white blood cells of the brain, so to speak, and the inflammation more than compensated for any benefit that might have uh, come from blocking beta amyloid. This drug did show some very minimal improvement, uh, both both the placebo group and the other group did decline, but the treatment group declined about 25% slower for over 18 months. And this wasn't a really big study. So you have a small study over a short period where you saw divergence between the two groups. And anyone who knows statistics could tell you that there's a fairly significant uh, possibility that that was just a failure of randomization between the crew groups are due to chance. But uh, what it did do over that period was cause brain swelling and brain bleeding. Now, this drug is approved, and now there's an open-label follow-up study where people who were on the uh, drug are allowed to continue it, but they broke the blinding, so everybody now knows which people were taking it. And I believe people in the placebo group were also offered the an opportunity to begin taking the drug. So since it was released, there have been two deaths associated with cerebral hemorrhage, because that's one of the side effects of this drug, is brain bleeding and brain swelling. So the placebo group had a 0.2% chance of brain bleeding uh, during the course of the original trial. The treatment group had 
a a 300% increase. In other words, they had a 0.6% or a 0.7%. Now, that's still under 1% risk of brain bleeding, but it's three times to three and a half times more than the placebo group. And this was just over 18 months. It's uh, like every, let's say that it's a, let's, let's be nice. Let's call it half a percentage point of brain bleeding. So, uh, many of those were asymptomatic. About two, two and a half percent of them weren't. But they were, since they were tracking brain scans, they saw it. I also want to say that if people were on a blood thinner, like, for example, Eliquis, because they had atrial fibrillation, and they took this drug, their risk of a brain bleed was 2.4 to 3.6%, substantially higher, more than 10 times higher than the placebo group, uh, not on either drug. So there's an additive effect of risk here that is quite substantial. In Four times greater in the drug group if you're also on a blood thinner. So... That, for me, is already a reason to think twice about using this drug. I will point out that the annual risk of having a stroke from atrial fibrillation is around 3%. So we're getting close to that 3%. In fact, we're potentially a little higher than that, than that with using both drugs, yet Bleeding strokes, brain bleeds, are fi- far, far worse than dry strokes. And a dry stroke is just where you lose the blood supply. A bleeding stroke is where you bleed into the brain tissue, and that is much more damaging and causes much more disability. So my thought is if we are willing to give people a drug for anticoagulation that increases their risk of GI bleeding but reduces their risk of stroke, then a 3% risk of stroke must be uh, an important finding. So are we willing to give people this anti-Alzheimer's drug who have atrial fibrillation? Are we, are we willing to give that to them at all? I mean, you know, in that you reduce a stroke that's a dry stroke risk, but you increase a wet stroke or a hemorrhagic stress, stroke risk substantially. And what about this effect? Is it cumulative over time? Does it fade away? Or are you buying yourself a half a percentage point risk of a, of a hemorrhagic serious stroke every year that you slow your progression of Alzheimer's by 25%? For me, the, the numbers don't work. And I thought what I would do in the last part of this program was talk a little bit about uh, a class of agents called nootropics. But looking at the time, I want to do the subject justice. So I'm going to kick that one down the road to next week. And next week, we'll talk about nootropics. But in the short period of time we have left, I just want to give you a interesting news of the weird about something that's related to micro to microorganisms and that's how life on mars went extinct you know i'm always talking about the beneficial effects of bacteria but recent study from astrobiologists in paris finds that mars may have housed ancient microbes whose very existence altered the planet's atmosphere 
and triggered a climate change that rendered them, as well as all life on Mars, extinct. They looked at the Martian crust from 4 billion years ago when this planet still had water. Mars was always cooler than Earth because it's further from the sun, but back then it was warm enough to have liquid water. Uh, And high levels of hydrogen and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere of Mars kept it that way until the microbes consumed the hydrogen and produced methane, which reacted with the atmosphere, slowed down the warming, and brought about an ice age that would have made Mars inhospitable to life. So uh, life on other planets may actually commonly cause its own demise. We did, in fact, have a massive uh, <laughs> a massive die-off of life here on Earth around the time that photosynthesis occurred and the bacteria and the algae began making oxygen. Well, too much oxygen is very toxic to many life forms. And that's one of the reasons why the if you want to find oxygen-sensitive bacteria, get a shovel, because that's where they all went to hide, in the depths of the soil. So, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Ask Dr. Don. We've got a couple of minutes before the top of the hour, but I'm just going to leave you with that double-edged sword of oxygen and uh, being toxic uh, to many organisms. And of course, too much oxygen is actually toxic for you. So don't breathe that oxygen. Don't buy one of those oxygen tanks and start breathing pure oxygen. You'll damage your lungs. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.